down a threat to decency and humanity. Last week, along with cocaine, what is it today? It's more in one small country. It is a big idea. Because of oppression, has new Listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McCroy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to take a look in the mind's eye. Tonight, we're going to be looking at the psychical research programs of the United States government. Interesting stuff on display here, for certain. This will be a fascinating topic for those of you who may be interested in such things. Tonight, we're going to be reading from a book by the late Jim Mars. This book is titled Alien Agenda, Investigating the Extraterrestrial Presence Among Us. And in this book, he touches on many different subjects relating to the whole UFO alien agenda topic. And always present are the government's research programs around the supernatural, the paranormal, the parapsychology field. And that's what we're going to be primarily focusing on here tonight. Not so much on the alleged connection to aliens or some such thing that has been sometimes inferred within some of these programs. But we're going to look at some of the ins and outs of the programs themselves. What exactly were they studying within these military and government programs? What were they looking at? What were they trying to accomplish? What are some of the details surrounding this? Now, Jim Mars was always a very well-read researcher. He was very thorough in his investigations, and he was good at producing his sources in many cases. So I always like to look at the things that he's put forward and Give them consideration. Don't always agree with some of the conclusions he's come to through the years, but he has contributed a lot to the conspiratorial type of culture that we have, hasn't he? Uh, so that being the case, I think it's important that we go through some of his writings here, especially when it comes to something like this, because much of what he has to say here is spot on well-documented and thorough. And I've always been fascinated with this type of a thing. And it's interesting to know that there are documented by mainstream sources, government programs, looking at psychic phenomena. Looking at these things and exploring these ideas and perhaps finding ways to use these ideas in a militaristic type way. You see, we have things like Project Stargate, that are admitted now. It's all out there in the public domain. These were once classified projects within the auspices of the U.S. industrial military complex. 
And the intelligence agencies had their hands in this as well. So we're going to look at some of those programs tonight and see what it is that your government has been spending your tax dollars on with this stuff. I always caution people, when it comes to these types of topics, you do need to take it with a grain of salt. There's no way to prove nor disprove anything, but these types of studies actually give hard data that's really hard to refute. So I think we need to give a little bit of consideration to what most would consider incredulous. Because I think there is something to the nature of some of this phenomena. You see, Project Stargate was mostly focused on remote viewing, or at least the portions of the program that came public were focused on remote viewing. They've developed actual techniques for doing this. And of course, this was in connection with an organization known as the Monroe Institute, where they were able to devise a system and a training program to train people to perform remote viewing exercises. And they had seen some successes with this. And some of the information that was actually collected pertaining to the government's use of these remote viewing programs was pretty interesting, and we're going to get a little bit into that here tonight. So without further ado... Let's read In the Mind's Eye. One day in the fall of 1985, according to author and Pulitzer Prize nominee Howard Bloom, a collection of ranking military officers met in a lead-lined conference hall on the third floor of the old executive office building across from the White House to watch a psychic in action. Seated in front of the officers and the president's science advisor were two Stanford Research Institute scientists and a man known for his psychic abilities. Going to pause for a moment. SRI, Stanford, Stanford Research Institute. Whenever they're involved in something, well, they're a major government and or military contractor. For many of these types of programs, they're a think tank group. And when they're involved, usually there's something important being studied or explored there. This is one of the favored think tank type groups that many within the auspices of military intelligence circles go to with some of these types of programs and study research. Them and Brookings are two of the top ones as well, of course, as some various other ones that we're familiar with, like Rand Corporation, but... Stanford Research Institute, if they have their hands in it, chances are there's a classified portion of it going on. So we're told that these people were in a lead-lined room. Why would they be in a lead-lined room, you ask? Well, maybe we'll get to that. Let's read on. The occasion was a demonstration of the phenomenon known as remote viewing. The ability to mentally perceive a person, place, or thing from any distance by other than normal five senses. It was a psychic ability that had been studied and developed by U.S. intelligence and the military for more than a decade at that point. But on this day, what to most people was extraordinary moved into the fantastic. 
After the psychic successfully described the country Dasha of Mikhail Gorbachev by coordinate remote viewing, a second test was begun. This one was designed to demonstrate that the use of remote viewing against submarines. A series of photographs depicting various submarines were shown to the viewer. He calmly gave their current locations. One Soviet sub was off the coast of Iceland. Another located in international waters off of the coast of South Carolina. But the last photo, that of a Soviet Delta-class submarine, caused the viewer some consternation. He hesitated as though he had seen something unexpected. The viewer announced that the sub was patrolling a sector of ocean between Maine and Nova Scotia. But he hesitated again. There was more, but he appeared uncomfortable in saying so. More than one member of the audience thought the viewer appeared frightened. What is it? asked one of the scientists. The viewer explained that while searching for the submarine, he had something, seen something else at the same coordinates, something that hovered above the submarine. Was it an airplane? queried the scientist. The remote viewer would only shrug his shoulders. The viewer was asked to sketch what he saw. He rapidly began drawing circles. One was elongated, apparently the submarine, but above this was a circle with no wings. Asked if he saw a rocket, the remote viewer again would only shrug. Finally, expressing the hopes or fears of many in the room, the scientist said, Well, what else could it be? I mean, you're not going to tell me it's a flying saucer. Yes, replied the viewer. That's it exactly. Despite this brush with the fantastic, Naval Intelligence and the Defense Intelligence Agency accepted the legitimacy of the demonstration and within six months launched a classified operation using remote viewers to seek Soviet submarines called Project Aquarius. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Project Aquarius. Now, we have heard of Project Aquarius before. We've heard of several different Project Aquarius is. Is this the official Project Aquarius? They love to name some of these projects various things that relate to the zodiac or mythology or some of the other occult symbolism that's always brought to mind with something like this, especially. So this is said to be Project Aquarius. Now, this was supposed to be a sub-program under the Stargate Project. Let's read on. Over the next 14 months, there were at least 17 recorded sightings of hovering unidentified flying objects by the scanning participants in Project Aquarius, reported by Bloom. It is unclear if this was the same Project Aquarius mentioned in the MJ-12 briefing documents going to pause again for a moment there, folks. I don't think it was. I'll be honest. The MJ-12 documents, well, they're, they're kind of questionable as to their authenticity. Many people will staunchly say they are authentic, and many others will say they've been thoroughly debunked. I'll let you use your discernment on that, but I certainly don't think that the Project Aquarius mentioned in those MK, MJ-12 documents are the same Project Aquarius as this. I do reserve the right to be totally wrong about that. But I don't seem to think so. But let's continue on. So we have seen that there is the establishment here of a connection between the UFO phenomenon 
and remote viewing now. So that's an interesting correlation we can keep in mind as we continue here. The 1985 demonstration and its acceptance by high-ranking military intelligence and science officials was just one more episode in a long history of Washington duplicity. While officially scoffing at any publicized report on UFOs, various government agencies quietly continued to give serious attention to such matters, even to the extent of using psychic remote viewers. And why not? After all, nearly all modern UFO close encounters appear to involve some form of telepathy or mind-to-mind communication. Many abductees report that their captors communicate by mental means. They hear alien voices inside their own head. Abductees Betty and Barney Hill, Betty Anderson, and Travis Walton, among others, all said they never saw their captors' mouths move, but instead felt their thoughts. If alien visitors are using mental or psychic powers to communicate with humans, perhaps humans could use those same powers to penetrate the alien agenda. In fact, many people familiar with remote viewing believe this process may be the best method yet available to penetrate the UFO enigma. If this is so, the question becomes, do humans indeed have such a psychic capability and can it be proven reliable? The U.S. government, based on the fact of continued funding and study by both the military and intelligence agencies, obviously believes the answer to these questions are in the affirmative. To understand how they arrived at such a controversial conclusion, one must study the history of psychic phenomena. And we're going to pause there just to point out that, yes, this type of research is continuing to get funding within the auspices of the military intelligence industrial complex so they must believe there is something to it they must think that psychic abilities in the human being are not only possible but can be used for a militaristic advantage in certain ways and of course we always always will find interpenetrated within the military and intelligence apparatus we will always find members of the occult fraternities, some of whom are heavily focused on the occult portion of things. And it seems to me there's reasons for this. It can't just be out of pure imagination through the ages that these types of phenomena have been reported. It seems that there may be a core of truth to some of it. And therefore... It's worthy of investigation. But let's continue on. So, all of the world's greatest religious texts, from the Bible to the Quran to those of Oriental mysticism, contain a wealth of stories involving prophecy, visions, and spiritual instruction. And all seem to involve visual input. The biblical book of Isaiah opens with the statement, These are the messages that came to Isaiah, son of Amaz, in the visions he saw during the reigns of King Uzziah, King Jotham, King Ahaz, and King Hezekiah, all kings of Judah. According to the Holman Bible Dictionary, early biblical prophets influenced almost every institution of Israel, despite the fact that they often were viewed with contempt, locked up, ignored, and persecuted. Prophets formed guilds or schools, and their assistants recorded their words for posterity. 
Biblical prophecy was not limited to men. In the Old Testament, the book of Judges, we find that a prophetess named Deborah provided the Israelite leader Barak with information about the military disposition of Sisera, the commander of the forces of the king of Canaan. Sisera's forces were routed, and thus Deborah, using psychic intelligence, played a pivotal role in the conquest of the promised land. Even in the New Testament, prophecy and visions played an important role as the messianic plan unfolded. St. Paul offered some advice on prophecy that modern people might well take to heart. Do not scoff at those who prophesy, but test everything that is said to be sure if it is true, and if it is, then accept it, he advised church members in Thessalonica. Prophecy also figures figured largely in ancient Greek literature, from Homer to Aristophanes, and in Greek history as well, according to the Greek historian Herodotus. King Croesus desired to learn strategic military information from the available prophets and oracles, but he was skeptical and wanted to assure himself of their accuracy. So about the year 550 BC, Croesus conducted the first recorded test of psychic abilities. He sent messengers to the top seven oracles of his day, with instructions to approach the oracles exactly 100 days after their departure. They were to ask the oracles to describe what the king was doing on that day. On the appointed day, Croesus chose an unkingly activity. He cooked up a stew of lamb and tortoise using a bronze kettle. Only the oracle at Delphi correctly reported the king's activity, stating, quote, can I not number all the grains of sand and measure all the water in the sea? Though a man speak, not I can understand. Nor are the thoughts of dumb men hid from me. A tortoise boiling with a lamb I smell. Bronze underlies and covers them as well. End quote. King Croesus, having satisfied himself of the Delphic Oracle's accuracy, asked if he should cross the Halvis Mountains and attack Cyrus of Persia. The oracle replied, when Croesus has the Halus crossed, a mighty empire will be lost. Croesus, thinking his plans were promised success, attacked Cyrus. But Croesus was defeated, and it was his mighty empire that was lost. This experience attests to both the problem of correctly interpreting, interpreting psychic information and correctly relaying that information. Such accounts continued throughout history. Joan of Arc was a visionary and a diviner who used her power of supernatural sight to, to a great advantage during her battles to liberate France from the English. But the visions of St. Joan pale when compared to the most famous of medieval seers, Michel de Nostradamus, better known to history as Nostradamus. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So we're going to take a look at some of what is known about Nostradamus. And this guy always fascinated me as a child. I had always heard stories, seen the television specials they put on, talking about the predictions of Nostradamus. In fact, some of those heavily influenced me early on in my younger days when I was still just a child. They had programs on television talking about Nostradamus's predictions, and one I remember very well talked about Arising sometime in the Middle East, a man wearing a blue turban, and this would be the next Antichrist. I remember listening to the quatrains and the interpretation of them on the television set. I don't remember the name of the program, 
that did this. I think it was an HBO special back at the time in the early to mid-1980s, if I remember correctly. But it was fascinating. I watched it several times when it was on. And I was always struck by some of the accuracy of his predictions. Of course, the accuracy of the predictions depends largely on the interpretation given of those quatrains that he penned. Now, being young at the time, I didn't apply as much discernment as I would now to such things. And therefore, this really influenced me in many ways where I was extremely fascinated with this prospect of things, with this notion of psychic abilities, and with the study of the parapsychological aspects of things. So it did influence me in many ways, and I'm, I've always been fascinated by this topic of Nostradamus. He was an interesting, interesting man, and many of the things attributed to him, well, I don't know if they're historically accurate or if this is another one of those figures that may have been a real person that existed that posthumously there were many things attributed to him that kind of formed their own mythology this seems to happen a lot seems to happen a lot especially when it comes to some of the secret knowledge the alleged secret knowledge of the mystery schools and the things they talk about Sometimes these figures who arise and may or may not have been real people at all become a mythologized version of themselves, and I think this is kind of what happened with Nostradamus. But many of the things attributed to him were fascinating nonetheless, and of course we're going to look at some of that here now. Nostradamus, already well respected in his own time as a physician and scientist, assured his place in history as a prophet by the publication of his book, Centuries, in 1555, which included accurate predictions even to naming future leaders such as Pau Ne Loron, a fairly obvious anagram for Napoleon Roy, Napoleon the King, Frank. Franco as a leader of Spain, and a Germanic tyrant Nostradamus called Hister. Going to pause again for a moment, folks. Perhaps, if you're as old as me, <laughs> you may remember some of these movies and productions and documentaries, films, TV shows that were produced about Nostradamus back in the 1980s. It seemed to be quite a popular topic at the time, and I do remember very much so being bought into the notion that he named this tyrant, or this Antichrist, as he called him, one of these Antichrists, he called him Hister, which is very close to Hitler. And this was one of the main notions that really began to catapult the idea of Nostradamus being a prophet or a seer into mainstream types of circles. So we've all heard the name Nostradamus, I think, at this point. And we know the association, that he was said to be psychic and was able to predict future events, and he was pretty accurate in predicting future events. And, of course, they've tied many things to his quatrains since then. But, as I say, a lot of it's in the eye of the beholder. It's what's your interpretation of these very poetic quatrains. So people have applied many different notions here. And as is, but been said here, <clears throat> they took an anagram to come up with the name Napoleon. 
Napoleon Roy, Napoleon the King. They made it work. So it's all part of the interpretation. Now, is it wrong to do that? I wouldn't say necessarily so. Not necessarily wrong. Especially if you know about some of the workings of many of these esoteric secret schools. They like to do stuff like that. They like to put hidden codes in the things that they produce. So, of course, they would see an anagram and a play on words and be able to rearrange the letters and the order of the sounds and come up with Napoleon from Pane Laurent. And they came up with Napoleon Roy, Napoleon the King, is what that would mean in French. And they play these word games and apply them. So it's not necessarily wrong to think that maybe it's accurate. I can't say for sure. Like I do caution you, you do need to take this stuff with a grain of salt. But a lot of it is open for the interpretation of the reader. So was he as accurate as the claims are? Well, let's read on and see what Jim Mars had to say about this. There was a legitimate reason for such word games. Due to the zeal of the Inquisition, Nostradamus was forced to use a skillful combination of puns, anagrams, and scientific and astrological jargon to prevent his arrest as a practitioner of witchcraft. Actually, Nostradamus, whose family included men educated in both the Christian and Jewish traditions, became a devout Christian and always attributed his prophetic insight to powers given by God. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. This is always, always one of the things that many in the secret schools fall back on. And it's kind of a misnomer. So they claim the only reason why they've hidden away these secrets and used esoteric means to disguise information or to misrepresent information was so that they could avoid persecution by the church. Now, they've been doing this much longer than the Christian church has been around. So that's a false appellation. It's disingenuous at best. I don't doubt that perhaps there was some concern by some people about being accused of heresy or some such thing and suffering the consequences thereof. Well, that just further helped to really cement the idea of using coded language when speaking about these types of things. That's all. But make no mistake about it, that is not the sole reason why many of these people within the secret society groups have done so, as they would claim. They always fall back to that excuse, well, it's because the church was persecuting them that they had to do this. Uh, they've been doing this much longer than the Christian church has been around They've been hiding the information for longer than that. So that is a false dichotomy of thought. But anyway, I just wanted to point that out. But of course, it is said Nostradamus was a devout Christian and always attributed his abilities to God. So we can give him the benefit of the doubt there, right? Let's read on. Well, admittedly, there is no certain interpretation of all of Nostradamus's writings. His predictions have been uncannily correct in many instances, enough so that everyone who has studied the French seer at any length has realized that his accuracy rating went far beyond any simple trick or ingenious interpretation. 
In his book Centuries, Nostradamus described how he gained his prophetic insights. He would closet himself at night in a secret study and place a cup of water on a brass tripod. After quieting his mind, Nostradamus would stare into the water until, acquiring a meditative state, he would see visions of the future. This method is strikingly similar to that devised for remote viewing. going to pause for a moment now. Now, this is where we approach the modern era and we look at some of the government involvement in psychical research. What did they put together? How did they achieve remote viewing in their Project Aquarius, the sub-program of the Stargate program? A more modern parapsychological researcher was Charles Rochette, a member of the Society for Psychical Research founded in 1882. A professor of physiology at the University of Paris Medical School and a Nobel Prize winner, Richette, studied clairvoyance by having subjects identify plating cards placed in opaque envelopes, thus pioneering the methods later used by the well-known psychic researcher J.B. Rhine. I've got to pause for a moment here, folks. And also used in the movie Ghostbusters, if you remember the original 1984 movie Ghostbusters. This is what... Venkman was doing. In the beginning, he had these cards with different figures drawn on the cards, and they were in a sealed envelope or some such thing where the participant in the study couldn't see them, and they made a prediction as to what shape it was, with or without some accuracy. And this was kind of poked at in that 1984 film because they always have to put the truth in the movies, lies in the news, don't they? Always this kind of thing, the revelation of the method. So they were showing you something that was an established thing, because remember, this was the 1980s when these research projects were going on. So this was probably in the heart of something like this when this Ghostbusters film came out. And of course, you always have your Tavistock plants in the film industry who feed ideas in and edit ideas in there. And, of course, Tavistock is heavily tied to the intelligence community, and vice versa. And we had these programs running at that time, around that time. Now, of course, the, the one we opened up here was in 1985, so that was post-Ghostbusters movie. But still, the time frame is still relatively accurate in there. I'm sure they were performing these programs prior to this 1985 demonstration. But anyway, we see these research methods that were used by Joseph Banks Ryan later on. Now let's find out some more about them. Joseph Banks Ryan and his wife Louisa both became heavily involved in psychic research at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. I'm going to pause again. So Duke University, this is another major Ivy League school with intelligence community ties. Many people at Duke, have inroads to the intelligence community. Many of the professors there, and oftentimes they're kind of tapped by the intelligence community and by the military-industrial complex to perform certain studies and look at certain things. So this is just another one of those inroads back to military intelligence, again, that exists within academia. And you'll find this all around the world in some of these major universities. 
This is how they get research grants and some such things from government programs. And oftentimes they have to attain top secret clearances in certain categorized programs to participate. And they do so. But let's go ahead. I don't think this one was necessarily a classified program. Let's continue on. The thrust of the Rhine's experimentation was initially statistical. Using specially designed cards, hundreds of subjects would try to guess which card would come up next. The Rhine's and their associates had by 1932 clearly demonstrated the existence of psychic phenomena. Rhine applied the term extrasensory perception, later known as ESP, to his findings. But perhaps more importantly, he had demonstrated that ESP involved natural relationships in the same manner as ordinary psychological phenomena. From 1927 until J.B. Rhine's death in 1970, the husband and wife team produced a prodigious quantity of scientific papers demonstrating the existence of both ESP and psychokinesis the ability to move physical objects. going to pause for a moment here, folks. ESP and PK, psychokinesis. These were some of the, I guess, trailblazing members of the field of parapsychology as we've come to know it today. Began in the 1920s and worked on it earnestly up until about 1970 when J.B. Ryan died and some other people may have taken on the baton from him and brought it forward, probably within the auspices of intelligence agency or military oversight, I would expect. But these people collected a lot of data, statistical data, showing, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that such things were not only possible, but they have been observed. Not just possible, observed and recorded. So this is an interesting bit of information to know that there's actually data that does exist even today going back that far where they've done well-organized experiments to prove out these abilities. And it is a known commodity to those in government organizations and military intelligence industrial complex types of agencies that these phenomena do exist. It has been observed and recorded the data is out there and they know it so next what what was their reaction to this how would they weaponize this because this is always the concern when it comes to these military industrial and intelligence types how do we weaponize this how do we use this to our advantage how do we prevent somebody else from using it against us so of course they took this kind of study seriously Let's read on here. This exciting research into psychic phenomena was presented in dry papers with titles such as Experiments Bearing on the Precognition Hypothesis, Pre-Shuffling Card Calling, and a review of the Pierce-Pratt Distance Series of ESP tests. The Rhines did have their fair share of critics, yet over the years they quietly, yet steadfastly, answered every criticism that came up. In 1940, the Rhines, along with other parapsychologists, produced a hook entitled Extrasensory Perception After 60 Years, a Compendium of Psychical Research up to that time. going to pause for a moment here, folks, just to point out that in the text here it does say produced a hook, but I think it was a typo again, and it's supposed to say produced a book entitled Extrasensory Perception After 60 Years. 
And this is a compendium of psychical research up to that time. So you're talking 60 years worth of data here. That's valuable data. Make no doubt about that. Valuable data that somebody has a vested interest in. Let's read on. The research in this book was so careful and scientific that the book became assigned reading for introductory psychology classes at Harvard for the 1940 and 41 academic year. Even the most cursory look back over the historical record of psychic phenomena should convince the most ardent skeptic that there is definitely something beyond the five human senses at work. Louisa Rhine wrote in 1967, quote, The ESP process has revealed itself, or enough of itself in the studies of parapsychology so far made, that a consistent outline of it can now be seen. Naturally, because parapsychology as a science is very young, knowledge about this process is still far from being complete. No doubt it will be a long time before many of the puzzles it presents can be fully resolved. Even so, there is little question that the outline of its progress, as traced from the deep unconscious into the consciousness, is a true one. End quote. Psychic research continued despite objections within the orthodox scientific community, and much headway was made. Techniques such as Gansfield sensory deprivation experiments and meta-analysis, or an all-inclusive study of psychic experiments, proved successful in proving the existence of a psychic phenomena. Several lines of parapsychological research are undoubtedly producing consistent, reliable effects that cannot be attributed to chance, poor methodology, or the vagaries of a few experimenters or unusual studies, noted Dr. Richard S. Broughton, a former president of the International Parapsychological Association. One of the researchers who produced consistent and reliable effects was a New York artist-slash-scientist Ingo Swan. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Perhaps you've heard of Ingo Swan. Ingo Swan. This guy was actually pretty famous back in the day. People knew who he was. And he claims that he had experienced psychic incidents since his childhood. But let's read a little bit more about him, because he did play a part in the military psychical research. In the early 1970s, Swan met with Cleve Baxter, a New York polygraph operator who in 1966 had made the discovery that plants hooked up to the polygraph machine registered responses to outside stimuli just like humans. His finding, now termed the Baxter Effect, was the object of an immensely popular 1973 book entitled The Secret Life of Plants. After finding that any living tissue, including even the bacilli of yogurt, exhibits re exhibited reactions on his graphs, Baxter concluded, quote, Sentience does not seem to stop at the cellular level. It may go down to the molecular, the atomic, and even the subatomic. All sorts of things which have been conveniently considered to be inanimate may have to be reevaluated. end quote. Swan worked in Baxter's lab for about a year. Baxter's work, verified and augmented by other scientists around the world, convinced Swan that something very real was transpiring on a psychic or subconscious level. By the end of 1971, Swan was engaged in psychic experimentation with Dr. Carlos Osis and his assistant Janet Mitchell at the American Society for Psychical Research in New York, the ASPR, the American 
Society for Psychical Research. I don't know if this organization still exists today or not. But it certainly did then. And I don't know where it got its funding, but perhaps Jim Mars can clue us in a little more. Let's read on. This work was done under the auspices of Dr. Gertrude Schmeidler with the Department of Psychology at the City College of the City University of New York and a board member of ASPR. The results of this experimentation were generally good, with more hits than misses. But on at least two occasions, the tests resulted in something quite extraordinary. On March 3, 1972, the target box had been lined with white paper, and Swan reported that there was printing on a portion of the paper. The tester commented that the test was a miss, because there was no printing on the paper. To everyone's chagrin, when the box was taken down and inspected, there was the printing just as I felt I had seen, recalled Swan. It seems the person lining the box had missed the printing. In another instance, Swan was valiantly trying to view the inside of a lighted box, but all he perceived was darkness. The light is out over the target, he shouted to the testers, who replied, impossible. However, when one of the monitors climbed a tall ladder to reach the target box, it was discovered that the light had indeed gone out, just as Swan had perceived. With results like this, Swan's psychic ability began to flower, and the concept of remote viewing drew nearer. Gonna pause for a second. So Ingo Swan. This guy was on the television, as I recall. Was a renowned psychic. And many things were attributed to him. I think this is the guy that they said was it him or Yuri Geller? Uh, he was all Yuri Geller was also involved in these programs, but one of them was made had always made the claims and had actually physically demonstrated this on television the bending of spoons do you remember seeing any of that stuff this is all part of this psychical research as well and some of the demonstration of a phenomena related to pk or psychokinesis as was borne out by the studies of the rhines but we'll we'll see when we get there but right now we want to see that Ingo Swan had a connection to many of the original remote viewing programs that were born out from some of the things he was involved with, with some of the research he was involved in. It was during the work for Dr. Schmeidler and Dr. Osis that Swan and Mitchell first used the term remote viewing. It was coined to identify a particular kind of experiment, not a particular kind of psi ability, Swan later wrote. I suggested that we call these experiments remote sensing. Shortly, though, it became clear that I didn't just sense the sights, but experienced mental image pictures of them in a visualizing kind of way, without all thinking much about it. And before the end of 1971, we began referring to the long-distance experiments as remote viewing ones, since this term seems to be the most suitable. During this time, Swan learned of a proposal from Dr. Harold E. Putoff, going to pause for a moment here, folks. Hal Putoff, you may have heard of him. He has a lot of connection to the UFO community as well. 
Dr. Harold E. Putoff, a physicist at Stanford Research Institute, now called SRI International in Menlo Park, California. Putoff wanted to study basic research into quantum biology and had no interest in psychic phenomena. But after several conversations with Swan, both men agreed to test remote viewing, but only under the strictest scientific protocols. This began nearly 20 years of remote viewing study at SRI. It was the most severely monitored scientific experiment in history, according to Jack Anderson investigator Ron McRae. During his time at SRI, Swan devised a method of using coordinates to determine a remote viewing target without telling the viewer what was at the location in advance. By giving a viewer the name of a target, such as the Eiffel Tower, the viewer automatically could draw on memory and his own imagination to produce a picture of the target. I did some experiments at the ASPR in which I moved my viewpoint to some remote location and described what was there. That was fun to do, and the studies were statistically significant, Swan recalled. I said I think I could look anywhere in the world if you just gave me some coordinates like latitude and longitude. Let's design an experiment around that. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So this goes just beyond the power of suggestion, as many people might think in these ways. Like if somebody was to tell you to try to remote view the Eiffel Tower, well, you automatically have a picture in your head of what it looks like and its approximate location and what events or occurrences may be happening around it. This is not the case with some of these real, truly statistical, anomalous studies that have been done. Now, Ingo Swan said, give me coordinates, and I'll remote view these coordinates. And let's read on and see what the results of those experiments were. See, this is a true type of scientific method being applied here to a phenomenon that is largely not understood still. Now, they've always, within the auspices of the occult fraternities, they've always acknowledged things like clairvoyance, clairaudience, clairsentience, these types of abilities, they called them different things, but it wasn't until this research that has been done by Ingo Swan and these associates here that they came up with the term remote viewing. So now this has actually become a type of a science unto itself, at least in the eyes of the research community that, that's looking at this stuff. So we have this science of remote viewing that may have been called other things in the past, and it seems there's something to it. So let's read on and see how those coordinate viewing experiments went. And with that suggestion, coordinate remote viewing moved into the SRI laboratory. At first, it was hit and miss. But in a final run of 10 coordinate remote viewing tests, Swan was given seven hits by independent judges and only one clear miss, indicating that, like his experience at the ASPR, his ability improved as he went along. Swan would simply be presented a set of coordinates, and he would describe what he saw at those coordinates. A world atlas would be consulted, National Geographic was found to be an excellent reference source, and the researchers would get immediate feedback. The Australian Desert, Madagascar, Hong Kong, Borneo, the Great Salt Lake, Mount Shasta, the Yukon, and the Indian Ocean were just a few of the sites given to Swan only as coordinates. 
1993 interview, Swan said there was one particular remote viewing session that convinced him of the reality of the phenomenon. Quote, They were using a wall map to get their coordinates, he recalled. Now, this map had a picture of Lake Victoria in Africa, so they plunked a coordinate down right in the middle of the lake. I reported a land-water interface, a peninsula, getting narrow here, etc. They said, well, that's not correct. And I said, it has to be correct. I mean, that's what I saw. I told them that the wall map ratio was pretty small and suggested that we consult a bigger map of Lake Victoria. So away we went and jumped in the car. We went over to a bookstore, and Hal had to plunk down SI-10 for this huge atlas. We opened it right away. I'm going to pause for a moment. It says SI-10. I think this is another typo. For some reason, this digital copy of the book has a lot of typos in it. I think that's supposed to be $10 for a, this huge atlas. Sorry for that side tangent there. But let's read on. So he says, we opened it right away. Right there in the store, and there in Lake Victoria, on this larger scale map, was a land peninsula sticking out with a narrow point. Bingo! There was the coordinate right over it. They didn't know that. Nobody knew that. I said, okay, Hal, this is what I'm going to offer the client as a repeatable experiment. Believe me, it is repeatable. So that is how it got started. Their chief client proved to be the Central Intelligence Agency... CIA officers were responding to the public's reaction to a 1970 book entitled Psychic Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtain by Sheil Ostrander and Lynn Schroeder. This book postulated that the United States was lagging behind the Soviets in psychic research based on the author's tour of the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. According to Putoff, two CIA men approached him at SRI in 1972. They knew of my previous background as a naval intelligence officer and then civilian employee at the National Security Agency several years earlier and felt they could discuss their concerns with me openly, Putoff recalled. There was, they told me, increasing concern in the intelligence community about the level of effort in Soviet parapsychology being funded by the Soviet security forces. By Western scientific standards, the field was considered nonsense by most working scientists. As a result... They had been on the lookout for a research laboratory outside of academia that could handle a quiet, low-profile, classified investigation, and SRI appeared to fit the bill. They asked me if I could arrange an opportunity for them to carry out some simple experiments with SWAN and if the tests proved satisfactory, would I consider a pilot program along these lines? I agreed. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So this is the testimony of Hal Putoff who had worked for the NSA prior to this, had also worked for naval intelligence prior. This guy was always kind of an insider in the intelligence community, and I guess they felt comfortable talking to him, and here he was at SRI, which ostensibly up until that time, well, you see, it was kind of a this low-profile low profile place doing this type of work. Well, <laughs> Stanford Research Institute has always been in the back pocket of the military intelligence industrial complex, folks. So that's kind of, I don't know, disingenuous, I would say. But this is the claim made. So he agreed. 
to start producing this study for the CIA because they feared they were running behind the Soviets in this type of research. Here in Western culture, a lot of this stuff is still viewed today as nonsense. And it's not given the scrutiny that it deserves. It's not given the scientific research that it deserves. Of course, unless you go within the classified programs of the military and intelligence community, that is. Let's read on. So this remote viewing study dubbed Project Scanate, scanning by coordinate, proved so successful that CIA funding continued until 1976 when the psychic program was taken up by the U.S. Army's Intelligence and Security Command, also known as INSCOM. More than a dozen military intelligence officers were trained using protocols developed at SRI and in 1976 were formed into Detachment G, also known as Project Grill Flame, located at Fort Meade, Maryland. Over the years, the project was variously known as Center Lane, Sunstreak, and Stargate. Got to pause right there, folks. So the Stargate program, also formerly known as Project Grill Flame, Center Lane or Sunstreak, out of Fort Meade, Maryland, was birthed from SRI and ported over by the CIA and funded by the CIA to form these projects, which began in earnest in 1976. So certainly you were being given a poke in the eye in that Ghostbusters movie in 1984 when they were presenting you these scenarios of the recorded and known data of psychic phenomena at that time. And, of course, these programs were underway. They knew there was something to this. They still know today there's something to this, although they claim many of these programs have now been disbanded and they never really got anything solid out of them. And they've let them go. They've lost funding. Even though this is what they claim, I think they're lying. I think they're still money being funneled into secret programs looking at these type of phenomena within the military intelligence industrial complex. And I know that I know that things like this are of utmost importance to those within the various secret society groups and occult fraternities that are interpenetrated into the intelligence community. So they keep close tabs on this stuff. And oftentimes, oftentimes, programs like this will get backdoor funding through black budget programs, special access programs. And we don't know what they're doing now. This is just stuff that has come into the public domain from the past. This is going back to 1976, and actually prior to that, if you want to look at the research that was done ostensibly privately outside of that, that they compiled together into this program for remote viewing, this Stargate program, they compiled this information and they put it to use for them. They developed protocols, they trained people to do remote viewing, and like I had alluded to earlier, 
Monroe Institute came up with a whole apparatus to train people to do this better and some technologies to help people do this better. It's called HemiSync. You could look that up. And this is related to the CIA program as well. HemiSync. But let's continue on. This unorthodox military unit of psychic operatives, or psi spies, was the creation of Major General Ed Thompson, then the Army's Assistant Chief of Staff for Intelligence. I became convinced that remote viewing was a real phenomenon, that it wasn't a hoax, recalled Thompson. We didn't know how to explain it, but we weren't so much interested in explaining it as in determining whether there was any practical use to it. Although apparently never utilized as a primary intelligence source, prejudice among ranking officers against anything psychic remained strong. Remote viewing was used to locate enemy military installations, rocket launching sites, and submarines. In the Gulf War, it was used in an attempt to locate Saddam Hussein's biochemical weapons stockpiles. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. I wonder if they ever found any. <laughs> what do you think? I don't know. But does that lend credence to the program or not? I, I'm not sure. Let's see what else that we can determine here. It was learned that multiple viewers strengthened the accuracy of any remote viewing. The more viewers involved, the more reliable the information, just as an auto accident scene, where a synthesis of eyewitness testimony generally produces near 100% accuracy. That the Army, and later the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, believed there were credible and practical benefits to be gained from remote viewing is attested to by the fact that both the studies here, the remote viewing studies, and the Operational Psy Spies Unit were continued until mid-1995. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So this program went on for 20 years 20 years compartmentalized secret programs delving into psychical research by the CIA and the Army. Military intelligence. Interesting, isn't it? Then following the abrupt and unusual cancellation of a major book on the subject, the CIA first admitted its role in psychic research. Although the story was covered on ABC TV's Nightline and the Washington newspapers, little or no coverage of the remote viewing story made it into local media. The American public remains largely ignorant of the intense and lengthy government study of this psychic phenomenon and its use as an intelligence tool. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. And of course, that shows the hand that the media has always been state-run media to anybody who had any doubts about that. They're not going to tell you something that they don't want you to know. Now, I think things are a little bit different today. I mean, we have a lot more resources at our fingertips for finding information, but still, the same notion would apply today, especially as it pertains to special access programs, black budget programs, deeply top-secret programs that may be underway. So they claim that this program abruptly ended in 1995. They pulled the funding and determined, yeah, they didn't really garner anything out of it. Although it's admitted that they actually used these methods to find enemy targets. Think about that. And that the more people they had working on this, remote viewing this, the more accurate the information they got back. 
much like reconstructing a car accident. Using scientific methodologies, they devised methodologies for doing this. They devised methodologies for training people to remote view. There is most assuredly something to this. I mean, this is on record. It's undeniable that this has been done. We've got the data showing that this is real phenomena that's occurring, that this is possible. And it has been used by the intelligence community in official programs for 20 years 20 years plus that's just, this is just what's acknowledged on record folks this is just what's come public about this now i have no doubt in my mind that that hal putoff guy knows a lot more than he says and he's still involved in various compartmentalized secret programs of that i have no doubt as well and he seems to be one of those people who puts out disingenuous information at times to cover his tracks and to cover the tracks of anything he is working on. But I digress on that point. I don't know the guy personally. Maybe he is on the up and up with things, but he's been involved with the intelligence community for a long, long time. And he's had direct contact with these programs, direct involvement in these programs. He knows more than he's saying, publicly anyway. And this guy is heavily involved with the ufology community. Heavily involved with that Blink-182 guy, Tom DeLonge who formed his To The Stars Academy back in 2015. Do you remember that whole debacle? And then you have Lou Elizondo out there making claims about certain things, and this whole Tic Tac UFO thing came out, and we have all of this stuff all tied to these various different programs. And this is the stuff they're making public, and this is the stuff they want us to focus on. You see, they're bringing the UFO phenomenon into the spotlight again for a reason. The alien agenda phenomenon into the spotlight for a reason. And it, I think it has more to do with the nature of consciousness. The nature of consciousness, more so than anything else. I think that's what all of this ties to at the end of the day. It's about the nature of consciousness, not about whether or not we're alone in the universe. I don't think we're alone. I think there are other intelligences other than human beings that coexist in various ways. And I think those intelligences are misdescribed to us in the form of this alien agenda in many ways. I don't attest to know what exactly they are or where they're from. But certainly, I think it has to do very much so with the nature of consciousness and the interrelation between human consciousness and the environment around us and these other intelligences around us. But at any rate, it's a fascinating thing to know that much of this psychic phenomena has been recorded and demonstrated to be true in scientific research. We have hard data showing its legitimacy. 
Now, they still are no closer to knowing how it works. At least that's what the claim is. And I certainly don't know how it works. But we need to be mindful there is something to it. And it does deserve more scrutiny and more study. And that study is not being done in the public domain. Now that makes this kind of a dangerous thing. So where are we at in terms of understanding these psychic phenomena? Where are they at within the auspices of the military-industrial complex? Remember, as a good rule of thumb, you can say anything that we would see as the state of the art in the scientific paradigm in the public domain is bare minimum 30 to 50 years old within the auspices of the military-industrial complex. They've already tested it and put it through its paces and found every militarized or weaponized usage of it 30 to 50 years prior to its introduction to the public as a public domain type of a technology or an advancement or a science. Keep that in mind. That's a good rule of thumb. So where are they with this? That now we're just learning about this stuff they were doing in the 1970s and 1980s. And here we are, 2024. And this stuff was going on that long ago. This program ended in 1995, this Stargate program, allegedly. Now, maybe it carried on under some other code name. I wouldn't doubt that. But this is what their claims are, and this is what they're revealing now. This is what they revealed shortly thereafter. I think this first started to begin to surface sometime in the late 1990s. The existence of this program. And of course, they're giving you just the very basic things that they can tell you about it. They're giving you just the very core details. The, the not-so-subtle points to all of it. This is the stuff that they're admitting to. And there's probably much more that's gone into it. But let's go ahead and we'll continue reading here. So we've already established that this was used, this psychic phenomenon, as a, an intelligence tool. A CIA-commissioned report issued on September 29, 1995, by the American Institutes for Research tried to downplay the issue, while admitting that a, quote, statistically significant effect has been observed in the recent laboratory experiences of remote viewing, end quote. The report writes, nevertheless, concluded that continued support for the operational component of the current program is not justified. Going to pause for a moment. So this is their story, and they're sticking to it. Yeah, although it, it produced some really statistically significant results for us, and it, it produced some very good and accurate things for us, it doesn't justify continuing to fund the program. Really. So it works, but we're not going to fund it. <laughs> That's essentially what they're saying. We discovered it works. We know that it works. And we've had some good results using it. But we're, we're not going to go any further with it. That's, that's the official story we're given. Let's read on. Echoing the position of the mainstream scientific community, the report stated, quote, To say a phenomenon has been demonstrated, we must know the reasons for its existence, end quote. 
In other words, if we don't know how something works, it must not be truly working. It was the old conflict of mindsets all over again. An official CIA statement swept the issue even further under the rug by claiming that the remote viewing program, quote, always considered speculative and controversial, was determined to be unpromising, end quote. What was not explained to the public was why this unpromising psychic program had continued under at least three separate government organizations and four presidents for more than a quarter of a century. The reason, quite simply, was that remote viewing works. Or as Hal Putoff stiffly put it in a formal report, quote, The integrated results of the remote viewing studies appear to provide unequivocal evidence of a human capacity to access events remote in space and time, however falteringly, by some cognitive process not yet understood, end quote. So I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. So this has everything to do with the nature of consciousness. We don't understand it. But because we don't understand it doesn't mean that it, it's not a legit thing going on here. And this was the whole notion. This was the whole premise from the beginning. You see, this gives the military intelligence industrial complex an important tool that they always utilize for everything. It's called plausible deniability. So by claiming, yeah, we did these studies and we funded them for a long time, and we thought from the get-go they were going to be unpromising. And, of course, all this is silly, and everybody knows it's all silly and nonsensical. So we didn't have any major hopes for it. So we defunded the program, and that's it. So even though we have hard data showing that it does work for some reason, well, we don't understand why. So we're, we're done. <laughs> we're done with it. And that's the official story here. We don't know how it works or why it works. But we have determined that it does statistically work. Provably work. But it, it, there's nothing, there's no promise there. There's nothing else to learn about it. We just don't know. So we're walking away from it. Do you really think that's how something like this works? How a, a major program like this that existed for a quarter century just, yeah, it's, we're done. Quietly goes away without having answered some of the important questions or aspects to it. Same thing could be said about the government's alleged involvement in UFO studies. Well, they've claimed for a long time, oh, that we don't look at that. Well, what's come forward in recent years? Of course, we've discovered, yeah, they did have secret off-the-books programs observing and studying this stuff, although no matter how small. And this is just the acknowledged ones. There's probably still secret programs that they've had going on for a long time that they haven't even acknowledged publicly yet or disclosed yet. It's the same type of thing going on here. But they have their aspect of plausible deniability in play now. Yeah, we did those programs because, you know, the Soviets were doing them, and we, did, we wanted to not fall behind the Soviets, but we found out it's all nonsense, so we defunded it all, and we don't care about that anymore. And there's their plausible deniability. Now, we don't have any type of remote viewers or psychical intelligence assets that can perform certain functions and help us in any way. We don't have that. We defunded all of that. That was all nonsense. That's the, the approach they've taken and the stance they've tried to push forward with this, although the data suggests otherwise. And that's the problem. 
we can now look at some of this data. This is the stuff they've made public. But of course, most people will just shrug their shoulders and say, man, what does it matter anyway? That stuff's nonsense. We've known it's nonsense. They're not doing it now. They stopped funding it. If it worked, they wouldn't stop funding it. And that's the attitude most people would have towards something like this. You see, it's this whole notion of this Western culture mentality towards these things. We've been taught to disregard anything related to the nature of consciousness or spirituality as being silly, non-scientific, and archaic ways of thinking because you can't necessarily quantify a subjective thing like that. And if you can't objectively measure a thing like that, well, then they just claim it doesn't exist. That's the modern viewpoint we've been handed with our scientific paradigm, with our science, this notion of science. Don't you trust the science? Don't you believe the science? If they can't measure it or quantify it, then it doesn't exist in their eyes. So something subjective like this, even though they have been able to come up with experiments to quantify this in certain ways as being accurate and showing promise, even though they've done that, they've swept it under the rug so they could still have that plausible deniability and claim there's nothing to this. It's not real. It doesn't fall into the scientific paradigm. And this is what they do with many things. And of course, secretly, they still attempt to further quantify and measure these things and come up with more precise measurements and quantifications of these things to give them better understanding of it. And like I said, I do think it largely relates to what is the nature of consciousness itself and the interrelation of consciousness itself with all other existence in this place in which we live. Let's continue on here. Another aspect of the Psy Spies program, conspicuously absent from the media stories, was that every remote viewer had, at one time or another, encountered UFOs in their mental searches. Initially ordered to locate high-flying, high-performance aircraft in order to view new Soviet technology, the Psy Spies were amazed to discover craft that did not originate on Earth. The laboratory studies of remote viewing had demonstrated that the phenomenon is not limited by time or space. Some viewers were able to perceive persons at a specific location even before they arrived, and no amount of distance seemed to diminish the viewer's insights. It has been speculated that space exploration may be one of the most important and cost-effective applications of remote viewing. And I'm going to pause for a moment right there. So this, in and of itself, is another important aspect of this. Space exploration. And there are some of these psychics who have claimed to have been able to remote view places in space, other planets, objects in space. They make these claims. What are they really looking at, though? And what can we find out about that? And they've done so. I think there are some. I, I don't remember if it was Ingo Swan or Yuri Geller or one of those famous psychics. 
made claims about viewing spacecraft on Mars or some such thing, if I remember correctly, remote viewing these. Now, there's no way to really prove that there's something like that going on. See, we, a lot of this, like I said, it has to do with, first of all, the nature of consciousness. And when you're talking about what's the true nature of consciousness, you have to always bring to mind what is the true nature of where it is we exist. What does it look like to us? Is there anything that can be objectively measured by us in this regard? And is remote viewing perhaps a tool that can be used to do this? And how much of these programs that have been let out for public consumption now, how much of what's been revealed here is true data? How much is speculation? How much is nonsense? We don't know, because that's the nature of intelligence operations. So we have this publicly disclosed program, this Stargate program now. It's caught on. It's a matter of record that this program existed, and they put forward this alleged data that they had compiled through this program, and some of these experiments and some of these observations have been made public, but how much of it's really true? You always have to be suspicious of data that comes forward in this way, whatever they release to the public. It's very carefully selected and cherry-picked, first of all. And second of all, sometimes they put disingenuous or ambiguous information in there to lead people astray from what the real nature of things is. And we have to wonder with this, so what's the true importance of this? Is this perhaps one of the reasons why they allegedly publicly discontinued the funding of this type of program because of this notion of this idea of remote viewing space? Think about that, because what would be revealed if they were able to accurately use these remote viewing methods of targets in quote-unquote outer space? What would they find? What would they reveal? And would it be as accurate as the methods developed here for viewing targets on Earth. Like I said, I think it has more to do with the nature of consciousness and the nature of reality itself than anything, and I think that may be one of the reasons why any further study of this may have gone deep black after the closure, the alleged closure of this project, Stargate. Maybe that's what they're trying to do in other secret programs, is look beyond the veil at what's out there. Are there really these other quote-unquote planets out there in space? Do they exist in the way we've been taught through science fiction and through our modern scientific methods to think of them? Are they really giant spitting space rocks flying around millions of miles an hour in multiple different directions at once through the infinite void? Or are they something entirely different than what we
we've been told. What's the true nature of those places as well? And if we don't even accurately know where it is we exist here, how can we know about those other places? A lot of this stuff has purposely been made vague to us. You see, we always have this this ideation here in this truth community or conspiratorial culture that's kind of been established now that you either fall in one or two camps. You have this group that will staunchly support the idea that we live on a globe flying through space and that extraterrestrial planets and civilizations exist and have been visiting here. Or you're of the mindset that we live on a flat earth and nothing comes in or goes out from here. Everything that exists is here locally. And that the things that we view as planets are just lights in the sky, lights in the firmament. So you have these two opposing camps, and then of course you also have the camps of those who would claim we live in a simulation of sorts, and you could fall in these other different categories. So we have this argument, where is it that we exist? And let's be honest, none of us truly knows. Now we can see evidence supplied to us by select small groups that are able to collect this information and convey it to you like doctored photographs of the Earth from space, or doctored photographs of other planets out there from ostensibly a machine that we're told is flying around in orbit, taking pictures, flying around in space outside of Earth's atmosphere, taking pictures, all these elaborate pictures of these faraway lights in the sky, these stars and planets and these formations. But you kind of have to take it on a degree of faith that that thing actually exists. Is there really a telescope flying around in outer space around the Earth, orbiting the Earth at like, what, 27,000 miles per hour or some such thing and taking all of these breathtaking photographs in such stunning detail? Or are you compelled to believe the evidence of your eyes that they have airplanes with these telescopes, these telescopic cameras on them that take pictures as well? And maybe they're passing that off as a space telescope or some such thing. Or maybe maybe some of the pictures are just outright photoshopped. We don't know. And they tell us that some of these photos that they take of these objects in space, well, they're photoshopped because they have to be. Because, you see, they collect these obscure and obscene large amounts of data from all of their different instrumentation that scans the sky. And they collate this data and put it together in a composite form. And they make an interpretation of it on a computer or as an artist's interpretation. And this is necessary. That's the only way they could really give you these photos is because it's a composite of the different bits of data and then they present us with things like if you were paying attention this past 
holiday season now. Of course, they came out with the obligatory news story about this Christmas tree nebula out there. It was a green nebula that looked like it was shaped like a Christmas tree right around Christmas time, of course. Amazing how all that comes up. And people buy it. It was out there in the mainstream news. You could go back and look at those articles, look at the pictures. And we're supposed to believe that. See, that's the thing. They make a lot of this stuff so purposefully unbelievably obvious that it's a facade, that it's faked in some way, that it's disingenuous, that we have these doubts in our mind. So even if they are telling us the truth about where is it that we do live? Are we on a planet, a globe, spinning a thousand miles an hour and flying through space, going around the sun 66,000 miles per hour and flying through space at half a million miles an hour, Flying and rotating in three different directions at once. Are we really living in that place? Even if they are telling us the truth, we have our doubts. Because we could see, with the evidence of our eyes, that they're not being straight with us about what they do know, and if they do know. They're just telling us what they want us to believe. Then you have the other side of that argument, too. You have people who make strong arguments for living on a flat Earth. That this is an enclosed system, and we have this firmament, and it's stationary. But there's a lot of holes in those explanations as well. And we've been given a lot of disingenuous information regarding that as well. So then your suspension of disbelief kicks in. A little bit. And you're not sure what to believe as to where we are. And of course, all of these different questions, what do they all have in common? Well, it all pertains to what is the true nature of consciousness itself. Because consciousness permeates all of this. And our perception of our reality is an important part of what our collective reality can be or what it is. You see, if the vast majority accept that we live on this spinning globe flying through space through the infinite void, then largely that's the reality that's presented here. That's largely the data that they collect to support that thesis and give to us. And it's accepted as a truth by many. And if they perceive it to be true, well, that in a sense does make it true to a certain degree. You see, it's all about the mind consciousness and how our consciousness and our mind in a sense shapes our reality because it shapes our perception of our reality now if your perception is misconstrued and if the perceptions of many people are misconstrued this can have quite an effect on our culture at large. And see, here in what we would call our conspiracy subculture, we've had an infiltration of this type of way of thinking of things. So we have all these different ideas, and I'm not opposed to thinking outside the box and considering a lot of these ideas and looking at the evidences for and or against these ideas. I have no compunction with or problem with any of that stuff. I think it's a necessary thing because 
what we're ultimately questioning is the nature of consciousness itself. What can we truly know? We can only know what we could perceive, first of all, because perception is reality. And even then, our perceptions sometimes lie to us or are sometimes not accurate as to what the true nature of the thing is. So what can we really know? And that's the thing about our consciousness that is so compelling and so confounding at the same time. It's subjective and experiential. There's no way to truly accurately gauge or measure or quantify consciousness. We can't even fully define what consciousness is. We can't accurately describe exactly what consciousness is, what it encompasses. And like I said, a lot of this has to do also with the nature of reality. One's inherent in the other. The nature of reality, the problem with discovering what is the true nature of reality, lies in what is the true nature of consciousness. It's all interrelated. It all ties together. And if there are those within the military intelligence industrial complex that have a little bit closer to some answers or ideas as to what that is, they're certainly not telling us the truth about it. You see, all of this information gets filtered out to the public into ways in which they want us to believe, and usually they like to divide us into two or three camps on different issues. It's the whole Hegelian mindset again. Keep people arguing over things. Not having actual discussions, productive discussions about things. What they've done is largely they've created animosity. And we see this, even in this conspiracy subculture, this truth movement whatever you want to call this thing we do. These things we talk about, these subjects, they've created this divide in this community, which used to be a lot more open-minded and tolerant of one another. Now you have, well, this one doesn't believe the flat earth, so I can't listen to anything they say anymore or consider that. Or this one doesn't believe the globe model, doesn't believe in aliens, so I'll disregard everything that's said there. It's created this divide. And this has largely been done on purpose. And I, I don't know if it's something that happens naturally over the course of time just by people's ideation of things or disagreements that come about just organically. Or if there's infiltration from those within the intelligence community field who think maybe some people are getting a little too close to the mark and they got to keep them in the dark not just the intelligence community, but the secret society groups as well, because they're all intertied. They're all tied together at the topmost levels. And there's a select few people in this world that seem to want us to believe that they know a little something more than what we do. And maybe they do, or maybe they don't. But that's the whole point. Just our perception, our belief in our perception that perhaps they know more than we do. That's all that they need in order to effectuate some type of control measures over us. That's one of the biggest secrets held within the secret society groups and the power structure. You see, 
if somebody perceives that you know something that they don't, that gives that person some type of power over you. Whether they actually know something you don't or not. It's an illusion. And I think by and large, many of these people in positions of power in this world, these social engineers, perhaps they don't know any more about the nature of consciousness or reality than we do. But they're pretending like they do. And they want us to believe that they do. Because that gives them a type of power over us you want to get down to it and this is one of the big secrets within the secret schools it has always been that way it's about perception the simple old moniker or idea that perception is reality is where a lot of this lies perception is reality so in order to control people's reality you control their perception of that reality Same could be said over what's the true nature of consciousness. I think many of these studies were devised as a way to try to objectify human consciousness in a way. They've shown it works. There are extrasensory type perceptions human beings have and can implement in certain ways. People can be trained to do this. They've proven this. People can be trained to do remote viewing with some accuracy, and they get more accurate the more they do it. And the more people you have working on it, the more accurate the picture that can be presented. So they've proven there's some aspect of consciousness that reaches outside the physical bounds of the human body, the human form. And this in, of it, in and of itself is something that I think is hugely concerning to those people in positions of power in this world. I think perhaps they've realized this to some degree or another all along, but they certainly don't want the masses to understand that the nature of your consciousness extends beyond yourself, your physical self, this physical body in which we exist. And that you can access this perception. And if you can access this perception, well, this will change your perception of your reality and therefore change your reality itself. And they want you firmly entrenched in the reality that they've crafted so carefully for us. That's the point here. So make no doubt about it. The United States government and the intelligence agencies and military intelligence agencies have been and probably still are doing studies on human consciousness, psychic phenomena, psychical research. They are probably still conducting this in black budget programs. I would not doubt it for an instant. And it's probably one of the most heavily guarded secrets within the intelligence circles, in my estimation. And a lot of it has to do with this phenomenon that we call the UFO, or UAP. They've tried to rebrand it now. And of course you see the whole alien agenda cropping up again. 
And a lot of this also, once again, relates back to the whole perception idea. I think they've also largely discovered that there are these other intelligences or entities or energies or principles, however you want to view these things. I think they've largely discovered that there's something factual behind that too. So they want to try to shape our viewpoint, our perception of that reality to fit within to this hyper-physical paradigm they've handed us, this hyper-materialist paradigm. And in my estimation, that's why they've tried to hand us this notion of extraterrestrial alien life forms flying here from other planets. Is that the true nature of this, of these phenomena that have been encountered and recorded, or not? No way that we can know for sure. But it seems that they've presented a couple different viewpoints that they want us to latch on to and perceive as the reality, and therefore make that into our reality. And they don't want us to understand anything deeper than the physical level of things, because that's how they maintain their control. And they've had these programs for a long time. They know that many of these psychic phenomena are real, that they do indeed work, and it has to do with human consciousness itself. And consciousness functions in a way different than what our mainstream science tells us it does. And that's why many of these things go on in secret. But they did have to let the cat out of the bag a little bit, didn't they? And they like to throw this stuff in the entertainment media, like I said. They gave you a poke in the eye about this stuff in that 1984 film, Ghostbusters. If you haven't watched it, go back and watch it. And take notice in the beginning of the movie when Venkman is doing his studies, how he has certain people involved in the study, and there was an attractive woman that he was interested in, so he was kind of flubbing the study. And they made a good joke out of the whole thing. But there was like a, a, a younger kid or something there that was actually hitting on the cards more so than anybody else and they didn't seem to pay any mind to that because they were poking fun at you they like to do that as much as anything else it's all part of how they maintain this type of power over human perception it's a type of mind control secret out there, really. They levy the secrets around, or at least they make you believe they know secrets you don't. And they lead you around by the nose in this way, and they laugh at you the whole time. But I've always found this topic fascinating. Psychical research. And the government has funded it. Disclosed to the public, it's public record, it's indisputable, this Project Stargate did occur. It's been acknowledged, it's been on the books for 20-some years. They've made portions of that program public, public domain, so you could go look at it and see what they claim to have done. And of course, like I said, 
always, they build in their premise of plausible deniability by, at the end of it all, claiming, well, we didn't really garner anything much from it, and it's not worth funding it anymore, so we stopped, so we're not doing that anymore. Do you really believe them? <laughs> I think you're foolish if you do, but uh, at any rate, that's the, that's the whole notion here. The whole notion, the whole premise, is that if you have officialdom taking this seriously, at least during the, the period that they did, there must be something to it. And we have all kinds of data that largely you never see you can't find that they put together in these different types of research programs that prove that there's something to this whole thing that consciousness extends outside of the human form that's the, the deal breaker there folks they don't want you to understand the true implications of that because when you do, they lose a modicum of their power. And that is certainly what they don't want. So they hand you little bits and pieces like this. Yeah, yeah, we did remote viewing. It kind of had some hits and misses. It was okay. We used it for certain things, but it wasn't really promising, so we dropped the program. Oh, really? So that's why you did it for 20-plus years. <laughs> They leave you guessing and scratching your head because confusion is ultimately their goal. They want to keep us confused about these things. And where does it resolve? That's the problem. It never does. I mean, you could follow this type of stuff down the rabbit hole into little cul-de-sacs here and there and keep you spinning in circles for hours and hours without coming to any resolution to these problems because at the end of the day, it all does come down to the, what's the nature of consciousness. And do they really know? I don't think they really know. I think they're doing their utmost to try to figure it out. And they found ways to physically quantify certain things to steer people's mindsets in certain ways. But at the end of the day, they're spinning their wheels too, trying to maintain their grip of power in this world. And they let little breadcrumbs out for us to follow here and there with things like this. Which this program ended 30 years ago. What did I tell you as the rule of thumb? If you see it in the public domain as one of the state-of-the-art technologies or sciences of the time, the general rule of thumb is it's already been mastered 30 to 50 years ago within the auspices of the military-industrial complex. So what we perceive as state-of-the-art is actually old. So this is old Let's put it that way. This is old information. It was probably old when they were allegedly performing these studies from 1976 to 1995. They probably compiled most of the data from the 1940s and had programs in the 1950s and 60s looking at this stuff. And they're probably just giving us the little nuggets of some of what their data showed. And I don't know, maybe they don't know much more than we do, and maybe they do. Don't know for certain. But they've certainly used this in a weaponized fashion, especially against those conspiratorial-minded folks out there who like to dig into these rabbit holes. 
it is kind of fun to look at this stuff. Like I said, I've always been fascinated by the subject of parapsychology and looking at these types of phenomena. But there's no resolution, and that's the problem with it. There's no way to find resolution. Because when you start digging deep enough, you find you hit roadblocks with these things. Because information about it is hidden away somewhere where you can't access it. Or that information doesn't exist, one or the other. So there's no true resolution, but we keep spinning our wheels and looking. And that's part of the beauty of what it is to be human. The beauty and the mystery of it all. And why do you think they've called themselves the mystery schools? Because the beauty is in chasing down the mystery. And that's where oftentimes we can find true epiphanies of thought. True epiphanies in thinking. But anyway, folks, that's just a little portion of In the Mind's Eye for tonight looking at our perceptions of reality and the psychical research done by the U.S. government. So I hope that this was informational for you, and I hope you enjoyed this. It's all the time we have for tonight. I want to tell you all I appreciate each and every one of you. We'll catch you next time. Have a good night now. Come with me.
It's what you can make. 